You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Right, good morning, church. Uh, today's scripture reading is taken from Acts 22, verse 30 to 23, verse 24. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you are going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for, the, for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. 
These are the true words of the living God. Check. Hey, thanks, Timothy. Uh, thanks for reading for us so well. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jacob, one of the elders here at RHC. It's a pleasure to be able to preach from God's Word this morning. Uh, let me just pray before we start. Yes. Um, Lord, I just pray from, as we see in the book of Second Timothy, that all, all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And Lord, I pray that you would use these words, these words that come from your word, as we look into it, to do all these things in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're looking at the book of Acts, and if you're just joining us this week, we've, um, we've, been, we've been preaching through um, for a few weeks now, and we've reached a really interesting passage here in chapter 23. Now, you know, one of the challenges with narratives like this is that they're historical accounts, and we have to be careful how we handle them because they're descriptions and not necessarily prescriptions on doctrine or the way things should or shouldn't be done. But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot we can get from it. The characters in these kinds of passages and their actions can give us warnings, encouragement, and even inspiration for our lives and our own walk with God. And in today's passage, we're going to look at the actions of a very diverse groups, set of, sets of people, Roman rulers, Sadducees, Pharisees, the followers of these Pharisees, and then contrast them with Paul and ultimately see how all of this points us to the person of Jesus. But before that, let's do a quick recap on where we are. So a lot has happened in the last few chapters. Two weeks ago, we saw that Paul knew exactly what he'd be walking into here in Jerusalem. Prophets and believers in multiple locations confirmed the same thing to him in the spirit, that coming to Jerusalem meant being in prison and chained and suffering. There's been sadness and weeping because for many they knew that this was the last time they were going to see Paul. But to all of this, Paul's response is recorded in Acts chapter 21, verse 13, where he says, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And now here he is, with at least part of that statement fulfilled. He's been mobbed by the Jews who thought that his Greek friends he was walking around with had been brought into the temple, which hadn't happened. He's under arrest, and he's almost whipped by the Romans until he told them that he was a Roman citizen. The chief priests and the council of Jewish leaders have now been convened in what was typically called the Sanhedrin by the Romans, and Paul is now facing them to make a defense of himself. So in these few chapters, we see intense conflict and emotion. And on the surface, you know, if you're just approaching this, uh, especially as a non-believer, you might say, is how relevant is this really for us? So a bunch of people in the first century were arguing about the nuances of some Jewish beliefs and traditions. But I think it's interesting to observe how conflict in general has been such a perpetual part of the human experience. I read a stat recently that in the last 3,400 years of recorded human history, it can be shown that we've only had peace for about 268 of those years, or just about 8% of all of recorded history. We really like to fight. In this passage, we see something of why that is. We see the corruption of man that even here is coming up against the very call of God and the mission of God. And we're going to see this in a couple of ways. First, the self-interest 
of the Romans and the Sadducees. Second, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and their followers. And we're going to, co- and we're going to contrast that with the self-denial of Paul and ultimately Jesus. So first, the corrupt self-interest of the Romans and the Sadducees. Now, even before we look at the people in this passage, I hope that we can also all admit that there's a part of every one of us that does tend to care about ourselves more than other people. This is something we're pretty much born with. I remember once when my daughter Ali was a little over two years old, we know we did the whole talk on sharing, sharing is caring, sharing is good, you know, it's good to share with your friends. And, and she said, she was nodding along and she seemed to get it. And a couple of days later, I saw her walk up to a friend who had a toy and say, share, and took the toy. <laughs> you know, child psychologists say that it can take up to the age of six for children to develop even some sense of empathy and see things from the perspective of others. We may have met people who are much older than that who still haven't developed that. Whatever the age, <laughs> empathy, there's a lot of laughing, I hope they're not here. <laughs> Whatever the age, empathy is certainly not something that's innate and needs to be learned in some way. In fact, some research even shows that teenage boys in particular around the ages of 13 to 16 even see a bit of a decline. Now, I think anyone who's a parent here will not be very surprised to hear of these kinds of results. But as we get older, we increasingly understand that in order to live in society, we may need to think about others as well. But the fact remains, it's still much easier to value your own interests. And in general, while people say selfishness is bad, in many ways, the world actually celebrates it and rewards it. If you watch a sporting event, you don't watch it to see people be kind to each other, right? You don't see one person score a goal and then say, okay, well, now it's your turn to score a goal, <laughs> right? You see, in fact, if you've ever sat next to a really passionate football fan, they want their team to crush the other team and humiliate them in every way possible, right? Every athlete on the field is competing for his or his team's self-interest and is rewarded for it. In business, only one firm can get the deal. Only one person can get the promotion. In my line of work, we negotiate prices for deals, and our job is not to be kind and give people extra, but to be as, as, as rigorous as possible to make sure you're getting the best possible price for whatever you're buying. Now, this kind of thinking can even be taken to the point where it's argued to be a virtue. In the movie, the, in the movie Wall Street in 1987, Michael Douglas, as the main character, Gordon Gekko, makes a fairly classic speech about greed which I'll put on the screen. And he says, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, greed for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And what he's saying is basically a an argument for rational self-interest that has been made by many people throughout history. The idea that selfishness isn't all bad. There's something about that that pushes society forward. But is that really the case? What does a world with self-interest as a primary guiding principle really look like? And the context of our passage, as we come back to it in the first century, is actually a pretty good example of that. The Roman Empire and the Roman, the Roman times was a world completely driven by power and status. A world where people were sent into a coliseum to fight each other just for entertainment. It was a brutal, brutal time. 
And in a way, Gordon Gekko is right. Self-interest and greed can take man forward. But the point is, not every man. Typically, the man who has power or who has influence or who has the ability to take advantage of other people, just like the Romans in our passage. Now, these Romans, were, they invaded, they conquered, they plundered nations. But actually, other than the Romans, I want to focus on another group we have here that might be a somewhat surprising example of this kind of self-interest, the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were a really interesting group of people who, while are clearly around when Jesus is doing his ministry, they're not mentioned as much as the Pharisees are. But they were the real power brokers in the nation of Israel at that time. They wielded societal power in almost every way except military. They were in charge of the two most powerful institutions for the Jews, the temple and the Sanhedrin, which is where the legal and uh, religious decisions were made. The high priest was usually a Sadducee, and unlike the Pharisees who were typical common folk and avoided the Romans much as, as much as possible, the Sadducees were merchants and aristocrats and very close to the Romans, relying on them for their power and influence. In spite of an external show of religiosity, you could say there wasn't much different from them in your typical capitalist Gordon Gecko. The Sadducee high priest in our passage today, Ananias, was recorded as particularly corrupt and ruthless. And one way we know this is in the great Jewish revolt of AD 66, he wasn't killed by the Romans, he was killed by the Jews, who were upset at how close he was to the Romans. Keep that in mind, because that's relevant for a bit later. Now, there isn't a lot we know about the Sadducees as a whole, and after the temple was destroyed in AD 70, they seem to have lost their authority, but we do know they were strict adherents to just the first five books of the Bible, basically the, uh, the Torah. They rejected other teachings and the oral traditions of the Pharisees. But one of the most interesting things we know about them actually comes from this passage, that they didn't believe in the resurrection, angels, or spirits. And so I know there was a long passage we read, so let's just kind of go back and recap. 23, 6 to 10, it's on the screen behind me. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Pharisees and the others uh, were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So as opposed to the Pharisees, so the Sadducees, so, sorry, that's it. So as opposed to the Pharisees, the Sadducees did not believe in any of this. And if we step back for a moment, doesn't that seem a bit odd? So they believe there's a God, but they reject that this God might ever be saying anything to them anymore. They don't believe in the supernatural at all in, as part of their daily experience. They seem to believe in a God that decided to make everything and then be extremely distant from his creation, and that there was no heaven or hell or anything to look forward to, that the soul died with the body, and this life was all there is. And so in a sense, while they were theoretically religious, they were functionally atheist. Religion was more a tool of establishing social status, having a community, and doing things like that. And Jesus alludes as much when he talks to them in Matthew 22. He says, you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. But if there is no resurrection, if this life is all there is, 
then the Sadducees were doing exactly what you should do, maximize your wealth, comfort, influence, while not breaking any laws. What's wrong with that? And I think the warning, but I think the warning for, here, for us here particularly in a place like Singapore is while we might feel we're not as corrupt as the Sadducees, hopefully, there are ways we too can behave like them. Because we can say we're in the faith, we can come to church every Sunday, we can do all the religious things, but functionally, we can still be following the spirit of the age that's all around us, living for all that the world has to offer. Our age might just look less brutal and less violent than the first century AD, Roman Empire, but we have to be careful about the fact that this is a very materialistic age. And when everyone around us is behaving like that, and we're so innately pulled to it, it's very easy for us to fall into that temptation too. But unlike the Sadducees, we believe there is a resurrection, that we will have to answer for every word and deed that we have committed, that God will ask us how we stewarded the time and the resources that he gave us, and that there is much more reward for us in this, in what God gives in, in heaven than anything the world can offer. We'll look at this in a little more detail towards the end of the sermon. And so before that, let's look at our next group, which shows a somewhat, again, counterintuitive, well, a somewhat counterintuitive form of corruption, self-righteousness. So the deceptive self-righteousness of the Pharisees and their followers. While the Sadducees lived like this life was all that mattered, the Pharisees were on the other end of the spectrum. They were willing to sacrifice a lot of comfort to be as perfect as they possibly could. They came up with dozens of rules to make sure they wouldn't come remotely near doing something bad. And they felt it was their responsibility even to make sure everybody else in society also didn't do anything bad. And they were very proud of this, carried themselves with a tremendous sense of self-righteousness. What are the dangers of this kind of thinking? And as I was thinking about this, I remembered a passage in a book, um, The Kite Runner, I'd read a while back, that kind of struck me. So the story takes place in Afghanistan, where towards the end of the book, the main character, Amir, goes back looking for the son of his old servant, um, who was part from a minority community called the Hazaras. It turns out that the Taliban, who really hated the Hazaras, Hazaras had killed his old servant and his wife, and had taken their son captive. So he tries to go to the Taliban uh, official in charge and tries to see if he can get that son back. As he's talking to this Taliban official, who is really, really cruel, this Taliban official says something that, that really you know, struck me. He said to Amir, you don't know the meaning of the word liberating until you've done that stood in a room full of targets, let the bullets fly, free of guilt and remorse, knowing that you are virtuous, good, and decent, knowing you're doing God's work. Now this character is a fictional character that was written to be as evil and despicable as you could possibly imagine. But while this is fictional, the author is touching on a profound point here, that some of the most evil acts in history are often done out of a strong sense of self-righteousness. If you think of people like Hitler, or if you're a Marvel fan, Thanos. <laughs> they all felt a deep sense of self-righteousness for what they were doing. In many ways, these people can be more dangerous than people who are just self-interested. Ultimately, the biggest problem with self-righteousness is that if you feel superior to the people around you, you might even feel the world would be a better place without them. 
and if, or if more people were like you, or if more people were made in your image. Keep going down that line of thinking, and it means that those people are a stain on society, and you might be better off without them. It's not a big step from there to start taking actions to do so. You don't even have to be conventionally religious to behave like this. Things like cancel culture are all around us and have many of the same roots of thinking. There's a list of keywords and phrases that you're supposed to say to identify with particular ideologies, especially around topics of gender and sexuality. And not following these rules or these keywords or saying these particular things means that you, you can be vilified because you're considered not to be a good person. The great irony is that modern secular thinking claimed that it was going to liberate people from religious, from religious dogma, but just established a new one. Coming back to the, to the passage, not only do we see the Pharisees behaving like this, <clears throat> but we see their followers. So 40 of them take a vow not to eat or drink until they kill Paul. Now this is ironic on many levels, because first, if they really read their Old Testament, they should know you are never supposed to do this, right? The books of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Ecclesiastes have a number of warnings on why you should never take a vow uh, to do something before God um, unless, you know, you're, well, actually, you shouldn't do that, right? Second, the, great, the second great irony is they're willing to break one of the Ten Commandments themselves, do not kill, in order to follow God's will. None of this makes any sense. But what's the warning for us here? For a religious person, self-righteousness can often be a bigger danger than self-interest. We like to feel good about ourselves, and our faith is something we can often feel very good about. I'm a good person doing good things. I serve in church on Sundays. I preach a sermon once in a while. Maybe we can feel we have a better handle of scripture even than other Christians. When we have thoughts like this, we have to be very careful because there's a lot there that, over, that overlaps with the Pharisees in our passage today and is not the way the gospel really should lead us to think. One of the great dangers of self-righteousness is it can actually make us even more prone to sin. A number of years ago, uh, you know, Pastor Jacob, the, uh, the other Jacob here, said something in a sermon that really struck me and I never forgot it. He said that often he's most susceptible to sin the day after preaching a sermon. And, I, and as I started preaching, I started to see what he meant because you put in all this effort and all this preparation. You spend the whole week consecrating and praying and, 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 and to coming up with this and you feel like you've done good things, right? You've been a good Christian. And when you think like that, it's so easy to let your guard down because whatever sin you tend to be more susceptible to, it's just a bit easier to fall for it when you feel like you've been racking up things on the good side of your ledger. But ultimately, the danger of self-righteousness, especially for those of us who are religious, is that we can even fall in love with ourselves and how good we are rather than God. And that's what we see with the Pharisees today, who missed seeing the very God they claimed to be following when he came right in front of them. And not only did they kill Jesus, they persecuted his followers, and now here they are, completely ignoring message after message that's sent to them, fuming at Paul, completely unable to see the message. There's some element of self-interest in these, but it's a tremendous irony that the greatest, most evil act in history was ki of killing the very Son of God and was justified by self-righteousness. Uh, self 
the great deception of self-righteousness is exposed by the gospel, which shows us that none of us are capable of being the model that anybody else should follow. That may be humbling, but it's also liberating. It means that even us as leaders, while we're striving to be the best that we can, we're not asking people to be like us. We're asking people to be like Jesus. All we're supposed to do is point to him and try our best to be like him. Now this brings us to our final section, how Paul and ultimately Jesus show a completely different way. So let's look at the Paul's self-denial and the power in that. So we've seen how self-interest and self-righteousness are very natural and have very danger and many dangers. Extremes of self-interest and self-righteousness could look completely different, like the Wall Street banker or the religious zealot. But at their heart, they have the same thing, the same root, an obsession with self. Paul, in these chapters, completely embodies the opposite of both of these. Instead of self-interest, he's willing to suffer. Instead of self-righteousness and self-promotion, he's willing even to be humiliated and even risk death to do what he's been called to do. Yet, as we'll see, there's a kind of counterintuitive power in this self-denial in Paul's life. Having spent some time talking about the different characters, let's take a walk through chapter 23 to see this. So the chapter starts with Paul unbound and facing the Sanhedrin. In the previous chapter, he made his defense to a bunch of, to the mob of Jews, and it did not end well. He pushed all the buttons that really got them angry. He referred to Jesus as Lord. He mentioned that he was, Jesus spoke to him in their sacred temple, and he said he was sent to the Gentiles, completely attacking the view of how special they were as God's people. Unless he walked back on all of those things, it was likely that they'd already made up their mind on how guilty he was. So when he starts off by saying, I've lived my life in good conscience all up till this day, they get upset. Because not only does it look like he's not apologizing, he's doubling down on it, right? This man was clearly deluded and needed a good hard slap to knock some sense into him. At this point, it's interesting that Luke records Paul's response, where he calls the high priest a whitewashed wall and curses him. And there's some kind of similarities here where Jesus called Pharisees whitewashed tombs, right? Like you look white on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. But commentators are a bit split about what he means here. He could be saying that the high priest was a hypocrite who just carried a veneer of purity, which would be true. He could be could have been sarcastic. He could have been saying, oh, someone like you could be a high priest? Huh. Or many commentators kind of lean to the fact that it could be his known issue of bad eyesight, which is, which is mentioned in the book of Galatians. And maybe he couldn't actually see who it was, but he saw someone wearing white and didn't realize it was the high priest. But either way, what was done to Paul was tremendously hypocritical. Because once again, we're seeing an instance where the leaders are willing to break the very law they claim to be following and upholding. In the book of Leviticus, it's forbidden to treat someone like that in court. And Paul doesn't hesitate to point this out. But, and, and then cleverly raises his point about the resurrection to get away because nothing else was going to work. Reason wasn't going to work. But let's look at the power of Paul's self-denial and how it shows up in at least four ways. First, self-denial gave Paul the ability to tolerate injustice and hurt. 
as we said, the strike on the face was a tremendous injustice. All Paul has done until this point, at great personal cost, is follow, desire to follow God's will in his life. Remember also that he's facing people who actually knew him and his history personally. In the previous chapter, when speaking to the crowd, he says that these people can vouch for his zeal in persecuting Christians. He grew up in Jerusalem at the feet of one of their respected teachers. Many of these people in the crowd were probably his friends at some point, and they just all stand by while he is struck before speak, after speaking just a few words. This is not just injustice, but there's betrayal and hurt from those who used to potentially be his friends. And when faced with injustice, betrayal, and hurt, one can feel fully justified in reacting. If our lives are lived with ourselves at the center, then there's nothing more important than defending yourself and even retaliating if any of that is under threat. Yet Paul is here for something greater than his own well-being or reputation or pride. And by denying himself, he's able to rise above his feelings and even apologize for his outburst even though no one has apologized to him. Second, self-denial gave Paul the chance to try and connect with his listeners. This is kind of a broader point from this, just this passage, but you know, if you step back for a moment, modern society particularly is obsessed with the idea of expressing yourself, finding your own unique identity. We have dozens of apps now that are encouraging us to, uh, encouraging us to do something, to stand out and be noticed. There can be a temptation often also to focus more on our differences than what brings us together. But this is not how Paul behaves. In 1 Corinthians, he says he's willing to become all things to all people, that by all, some means he may save some. To the Greeks, he speaks in Greek. To the Jews, he speaks in Hebrew. To the Romans, he mentions his Roman citizenship. And in this passage, as much as he has been mistreated by these people, he starts out by calling them brothers. He's not obsessed with expressing his own identity and who he is, but in being whatever or whoever it needs to be to connect with the people in front of him. Third, self-denial kept Paul focused on his mission and the ultimate destination of Rome. And I want to slow down for a moment here because this is an important part of the passage. Paul is taken back to the barracks, and we know from, the past, from other passages that Paul was not very strong. He's been through a lot in the last few days, and now he's all alone. If I was him, if you're looking at him at this moment, it all seems a very, very long way from fulfilling his mission to go to Rome, which he, was, which he said he was on. In that moment, he is strengthened in the best possible way with an encounter with the risen Christ, his Lord, who comes and stands by him and tells him to have courage, and says that as he has testified about him here in Jerusalem, he will, he will do so in Rome. And of course, we know that that did happen, that Rome eventually became the center of the Christian faith for many centuries. The first time, the first time that Christ appeared to Paul, he was struck blind. This time, he's given spiritual insight and encouragement on where he's going. The completion of Paul's mission wasn't really in his own hands. It wasn't going to succeed because of a great strategic plan that he came up with to get to Rome. Get, getting thrown into prison and getting in this way would not be a, a very rational part of that plan. But he could have courage 
because God's sovereign will was going to be done. And there was nothing in this world, corrupted as it is, that could go against it. Behind the scenes, God was working. And we see in this and in the coming chapters, this is the start of a series of events that actually leads Paul to Rome with the chance to preach to many influential rulers on the way. But finally, self-denial modeled the life of Jesus and the work of the cross. Jesus faced a very similar situation before this very Sanhedrin, but he did not escape. He was struck, but he did not respond. The call that he obeyed in his life was to subject himself completely to the injustice of this council in order to pay the price for our sins, for all of us who are unworthy of this great, great gift that he gave. And Paul now is simply following what Jesus said it meant to respond to this and follow him. In Matthew 16, verses 24 to 25, he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But what does it really mean to deny ourselves here and now? And I feel a bit uneasy sometimes just kind of talking about something like this because I feel like it's easy for me to say sitting here in Singapore um, that we should talk about self-denial. You know, we're not facing persecution. We're not facing being thrown in jail. I live a fairly comfortable life. Uh, it's pretty easy to be a Christian in Singapore. So what does self-denial look like for us? And the more I thought about it, though, I realized that self-denial is actually something that we're constantly evaluating in some way or another in our lives. To do well in exams or to get into good colleges, many of you here have had to practice self-denial of doing fun things so that you could study in order to achieve that. Many jobs require huge time commitments, even outside of regular hours, but you do them. If we want to look good or we're willing to make sacrifices in our diet or experience the pain of intense workouts, if we want to be good parents, we sacrifice a lot of comfort for the sake of our kids. But we have no problem sacrificing or practicing self-denial in these things because we expect to gain something from them from the short-term cost that is even better. Paul gets this, but he's focused on so much more than worldly things because he says in Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Jesus described the kingdom of heaven as a treasure buried in a field. When a man found it, he sold all that he had to buy that field. He realized that what was in that field was worth so much more than whatever he had. Self-denial isn't actually about cost. It's about, reeling, it's about realizing how much more is offered to us than the little that we are holding on to. But you know, could this idea be even accused or be considered somewhat mercenary? Is it really good to do good for a reward? Well, the best answer I've seen to this is something I read in C.S. Lewis' sermon, um, The Weight of Glory. And he asks, is it mercenary for a man who is pursuing a woman to buy gifts or to buy that woman a ring? Do we call that mercenary? Well, yes, if what the man wants 
is something from that women, woman, like her wealth or something like that. But if what he desires is not something from her, but her, then we see that as something good. And we need to see that the greatest gift we will get, more than the glory of heaven, more than any crowns that we may be given, is the unblocked, unfettered communion with him for eternity. We get a small taste of that. We get some taste of that now. But one day we will be completely surrounded by that. And in the book of Revelation, this is described as so glorious that even though there are saints there who have been given crowns of recognition for what they have done, they throw them down at the foot of the Lamb, crying, worthy is he to receive all glory, honor, and power. And who can, who can gaze, who can consider what he has done for us? So what does this mean for you and me today? I think an important challenge we can take from this passage is kind of twofold. One, keeping our eyes on our final destination, right? But also understanding what God's call on our lives specifically is. This will look different for everyone. Some may be called to church ministry, some to the marketplace, some to be homemakers. But there's a quote that I heard recently that struck me. If you don't know where you're going, how will you know when you get there? And as we close, I'd like us to spend some time thinking about that. But as we do, we must not forget the reasons that Paul was able to experience all these benefits of self-denial. He was able to do this because he had met and had a relationship with the risen Lord. He knew there was nothing better, nothing truer to live for. And he completely trusted in God's sovereign plan for his life. We're not to do self-denial as some form of penance or ritual that gets us credit, but as a response to these wonderful truths. And the question for all of us here today is not whether we practice or whether to practice self-denial or not. It's that what we practice self-denial for shows us what we truly value. So I'd like to end today by just reading some of the lyrics of the song, The Wonderful Cross, which is based off an old hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let us pray. Lord, we just come before you. Little as we have, we marvel, we wonder at what you are willing to do for us. Lord, that it maybe one would consider dying for a righteous person, but you, you died for us sinners such as us. And Lord, we come before you and we, pray, we ask, we repent, we ask that you would cleanse us, you would cover us, and we tr say that we can trust in your sovereign will, in your sovereign power, and that we can live for you. And Lord, that there is nothing greater, there is nothing greater than following that. Lord, I pray for each and every person here, Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts, you would, your call, even in a general sense, but also even in a specific sense, Lord. I pray that you would speak, that the Spirit would show each and every one of us, what are you calling us to do, Lord? How can we live for you? What 
steps can we take even in the next week to, to be part of your mission, to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.